Welcome to the Pensacola People's Podcast. Oh. <laughs> hey guys. Hello. Hello. How's it going? And Jacoby Elmore. We're so excited to be hosting this discussion. Uh, welcome to Creative Learning Academy's uh, P- Pensacola People's Podcast, where we interview impactful people in our community. On this episode, we will be speaking with aspiring environmentalist and activist, Mrs. Anna Jane Joyner. Thank you, Ms. Joyner, for being here with us today. Can you tell us? Yeah. Sorry, I missed that one. Say it one more time. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a climate activist. I've been a climate activist since I was about 20, so 16 years now. Um, I basically just got started because I studied abroad in New Zealand when I was in college and just really fell in love with the wild places of this earth, um, incredible mountains and rivers, and just knew that I felt called to protect it. So that kind of launched me uh, in on my career, and I focus mostly on communication. So I have my own podcast called No Place Like Home, and then I work with a lot of campaigns, and I do some documentary, uh, producing documentary films. Um, I just did a really cool one called We Don't Give Up on um, the Fight of the Gwich'in People, who's a Native American nation in Alaska and Canada who are fighting to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge from oil drilling um, because it's their sacred lands. Um, So yeah, I get to do a lot of really cool communication stuff, um, and I love talking to students like you guys. Um, so uh, another question, what inspired you to become an environmental activist? Like what, how, um, well, I mean, you already actually answered that, so. (laughs) Yeah, I can go a little deeper. I I studied abroad in New Zealand, so that was the big, like, kind of my epiphany moment, um, was I happened to have been taking an ecology course there, because I, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but they have a really hard science curriculum. So when I studied abroad in New Zealand, I thought it would be easier to take my science class over there. And I just happened to take an ecology course because it's what fit in with my schedule and, um, and was learning about how the world works, you know, how grasses grow, why birds migrate, all of these little magical systems that keep us all alive and was just mesmerized. And then at the same time, I was, you know, running all over New Zealand, you know, hiking, in the remarkable mountains and just in these beautiful wild places. And I think that something just clicked for me. I just kind of knew that that was what I was called to do was to protect the earth. Um, So I went back to Chapel Hill um, to my home university and switched my major to environmental studies. Um, And yeah, that's where I learned about a lot of the things that we were doing to the earth, like climate change and Uh, mountaintop removal and coal mining, which is a form of coal mining they do in Appalachia, which is where I grew up. I grew up in Western North Carolina. Um, You know, oil drilling and how that affected, you know, the oil spill affected our waters down here on the Gulf Coast, just all of these like ways that we were destroying the environment and the earth and how that was uh, impacting human lives too. Um, People's jobs, people's health, you know, we're all very interconnected. We drink water and we eat food and we breathe air. So what we do to the earth, you know, hurts us as well. So that's, 
that's kind of how I got started. What, what, according to you, is the biggest environmental threat today and how can it be overcome? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, definitely the climate crisis is the biggest uh, environmental and public health threat. Um, it's, you know, like what we're seeing just happened in Texas and, and down here with this uh, really strange polar vortex storm where basically my friend says the, the Arctic got drunk and like kind of pushed all of its super cold weather down to places like the deep south that aren't um, experienced. You know, we don't have the infrastructure, the ability to navigate these really freezing um, temperatures, which is why a lot of people in Texas and in Alabama were, you know, didn't have heat or access to water. And so um, my friend, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist, likes to say that we should call it global weirding instead of global warding, because it's not just that it gets hotter. Overall, the temperature of the earth is getting hotter. Um, but it also just leads to really weird weather, you know, like hurricanes that are wetter and slower and more dangerous, these crazy fires out west, you know, that are causing people to have to move and evacuate and affecting the air quality and public health for, you know, whole states. And then down here, of course, the sea level rise and the hurricanes are, are the biggest threats. You know, Hurricane Sally, for example, which we just experienced and really damaged our region, scientists know that that was influenced by climate because the Gulf waters is at record highs. So it's warmer than it's ever been. And that is essentially fuel for hurricanes. So it makes them, it makes it, you know, it made that one really weird. So it intensified really quickly. Um, it was a lot, it makes them a lot wetter. So they pour a lot more rain on, which makes it, you know, the land, like basically like a lot more trees fall over when there's a lot of rain because the ground isn't as stable. And so you see all of these kind of intersectional crises happening um, that are influenced by climate change. Um, and we're going to keep, you know, unfortunately, we're going to keep seeing that um, just, you know, basically the way that the climate works, and you guys might know this from your science classes, is that any greenhouse gas pollution that we put into the environment and into the climate takes about 50 years to catch up. So what we're experiencing right now is the pollution that we put into the climate 50 years ago. So we've already locked in another 50 years of pollution, even if we stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow. Um, that being said, there is still a lot that we can do <laughs> to help. Um, definitely, we're gonna have to decrease and go off of fossil fuels in, in your lifetime, probably in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's gonna be big um, economic transitions and uh, really rethinking how our societies do things to keep people safe, but also to keep the lights on um, and to keep, you know, our, we need electricity. So we have to think through renewable and innovative ways to do, to transition our, our, our energy system. Um, yeah, so, and then there's, you know, there's a lot of like resilience work like down here on the Gulf Coast because um, these hurricanes aren't gonna stop. They're gonna continue to be weird and, and worse than the ones that we've seen in the past, we have to think about how do you help communities, especially poor communities and our you know, neighbors who can't just afford to, maybe they don't have a car so they can't evacuate when there's a bad storm or maybe they can't afford to rebuild if their home is destroyed. You know, how do we take care of the people who are already experiencing these really harmful impacts um, so that you know, we can keep people safe and alive? So uh, I have kind of a follow-up question. So uh, just by your kind of estimation, how long do you think we have before uh, like polar ice caps are melted and all that? 
Yeah, so I'm not a climate scientist, um, but I do. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is an amazing climate scientist. She does like a PBS um, YouTube series where it answers a lot of um, these kinds of questions in really accessible ways. Um, so she's a great person um, to follow if you are interested in getting more in depth in the science. But you know, scientists are saying that we have about 10 years to really to turn the tide on climate. So that means to decrease our fossil fuel emissions, actually go off of fossil fuels um, within probably the next 20 to 30 years before we start seeing, like we're already seeing climate change, you know, like this crazy winter storm, Hurricane Sally, the fires out west, all of these things are, are climate, you know, related to climate change and related not just to the kind of historic natural cycles of climate, but the, the pollution that humans have put into the air through fossil fuels in the past 100, 150 years. But we kind of run a we're at a turning point, right? Where we could keep going in this really dangerous direction and sort of just burning, you know, you know, digging up fossil fossil fuels, which is essentially like dinosaur bones, <laughs> is one way to think of it, and burning it and throwing it into the air to get our electricity. Or we could we could shift course and, and come up with more uh, renewable and innovative and compassionate ways to run our societies. Um, so if we keep going down the kind of dark, scary path we're headed down, we are, we're looking at a very scary future, um, for sure. And, and not just like your kids, like your future. It could, you know, it's like within the next 50 years in my lifetime, we could see a lot of this really bad stuff. Um, so that is, and that's like polar ice caps melting. That's kind of worst case scenario. You know, whole island countries having to relocate because of sea level rise you know, vast swaths of the country and the world not being able to grow food because of droughts and other things like that. So that's really, really bad. We don't wanna do that. And so the alternative is that we do um, everything we can in the next 10 years to decrease our reliance on fossil fuels, to build healthier, more compassionate and sustainable systems. And we help all these communities like many in our community who are already being impacted um, deal with deal with the impacts we've already put in. So um, sometimes some people we will have to will have to relocate and migrate to places that are safer. Um, sometimes we'll just have to rebuild our communities in ways that are more hurricane safe or more fire safe. You know, there's lots. Every community is different. Um, but yeah, it's definitely my hope. And uh, it's you know one of my friends um, is the director of campaigns at the Sierra Club, which is one of the nation's biggest environmental organizations. And she likes to say that like in some ways we are a really lucky generation and that encompasses kind of yours and mine because we are the first people to see the impacts of climate change. So we're the first ones who can look at it and say, oh, wow, this is impacting our life. But we're the last generation who actually gets to do anything about it. So like your kids, it's gonna be too late one way or another. Um, the the ball will be rolling, um, but we we still have get to have an impact on, on how we handle this, and that's a really it's a big responsibility, but it's also a big honor, you know, in a lot of ways to be entrusted with caring for our world in this way. Um. So, do you consider yourself to be someone that positively impacts society, and if so, how? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, certainly I became an activist. Sorry, you can hear my dogs playing with their toys behind me. Um, ben, can you make them stop? Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, certainly I became an activist because I wanted to help people. You know, I wanted to help people and I wanted to help this world. Um, I was, you know, fell kind of in love with this, with this earth and with this life. And I also was really angry about all of the bad things that we are doing to hurt the world and to hurt each other. And so my life has been dedicated to trying to create a positive impact. And, you know, I've been a part of a lot of campaigns. I've worked on ending mountaintop removal. I most recently did this project with the Gwich'in on the Arctic um, National Wildlife Refuge. I want to get more involved in local environmental efforts because there's, a, you know, we're on the front lines of climate change here on the Gulf Coast. Um, so there's a lot to do locally. I was a part of a really cool campaign that retired a coal-fired power plant um, in Asheville, North Carolina. So I hope that I've been able to make a positive difference. The big way that I am working to make a positive difference right now is through um, through storytelling. So through the podcast, I also work with TV and film writers um, in, in Hollywood around um, kind of better climate storytelling in TV and film. Because I think in order to have an idea of how to change the world, you have to have a vision for it. You have to have a story for what it looks like. And so I think um, we need to start creating those stories that not only just give us a vision and a path forward, but also just help people know that they're not alone, you know, that this can feel big and scary, but there are other people out there who care about it. And there are other people out there who are working on it. And if we connect with each other and we work together, we can make a big positive difference. So um, really quick, just uh, another comment or question. Um, if you could recommend one of your podcasts or like TV series shows, uh, what would it be? Yeah, um, so, on the TV series, I helped consult on a show called Madam Secretary. It was a CBS um, series, kind of a political drama, but they did a, a three-part climate story arc that was super compelling um, that I helped to kind of craft that story. There's actually a character that's based off of me, which is crazy, but fun. Um, she's a little more dour than I am, I hope. But yeah, so that's fun. That's in season... I think it's season six, but I can send it to you to, to include. Um, if you just Google Madam Secretary and climate change, it'll come up. On podcasts, yeah, my podcast, No Place Like Home, is a really good resource. Um, we just did a season on spirituality and climate change. So looking at um, all kinds of different spiritual teachers around how to, you know, how to grapple with this issue, where to find courage and hope and also grieve and, and, and kind of acknowledge that this is hard and scary sometimes. Um, so that's a beautiful season, it's called Bring the Light and we do everything from sort of evangelical Christians to um, an amazing Jewish rabbi to an indigenous leader. Um, yeah, to this really amazing um, black pastor who runs a group called Hip Hop Caucus that works with both people of faith and hip hop artists. Um, to do more music around climate. So yeah, some really inspiring people there um, for sure. So yeah, check out our last season of No Place Like Home. And that Madam Secretary um, episode and the couple of episodes around climate are, are super powerful for sure. Um, how does your current, or how does your, yeah, your current work like affect social and political issues today? Yeah, so I'm actually working on a really interesting documentary right now. It's already been produced, but I'm helping them get the word out um, through communication. 
Um, but it's on a group of 16 kids who have sued the US government um, to, they actually sued the government under the Obama administration and the, the lawsuit has gone through the Trump administration is now still being heard by courts in the Biden administration. But basically they sued the government for not protecting their future for you know, the kind of claiming that their constitutional rights have been harmed because of climate change. And they've gotten a lot of traction. They, it hasn't gotten thrown out of the courts yet. And it was you know, 16 kids, like some of them, when they first filed the suit were young, I mean like 10, nine, really young. And, and they kind of, it's been in the courts several years now. So some of them are in their like early twenties, but it's a really inspiring group of young people who have gone up against the US government to say, hey, we need you to protect us from climate change. Um, so that's one I'm really, really excited about. Um, I'm also working on a project around climate migration. So people in the United States who either have already had to migrate because of climate change. So for example, after Hurricane Katrina, when so many people had to leave the New Orleans region, um, but also what, like we're seeing now from the wildfires out West, even some of the folks who have uh, left Puerto Rico because of hurricanes Irma and Maria. So just looking about the reality that, you know, we are, there are gonna be communities um, in this country and certainly around the world that are going to have to change, you know, relocate, and that's going to change who they are and their identity and their culture. And um, and so, how do we do that in a compassionate way that gives people agency? And you're not just kind of telling people you have to move because it's dangerous, but actually giving them um, giving them a way to participate in those choices um, because that's you know their lives and that's deeply unsettling, but also hopefully it could be something that that's beautiful too. And we can create ways to do it that are compassionate and welcoming to, to all those affected. Oh, sorry. So uh, what would you say the next country or like city in the US that would um, get affected by climate change would be? I mean, we're all affected by climate change at this point. It's, you know, it's literally everyone in the whole world is affected by climate in one way or another. Um, but as far as like the most severe impacts, I mean, there's there's a few. New Orleans is very low lying. Uh, it's also in you know hurricane path, so that one um, is pretty scary for sure. Miami, um, I mean, the reality is is we're probably not going to be able to save a lot of South Florida because of the climate impacts we've already put into the atmosphere. So that you know we're going to have to have really hard conversations about, you know, how do we provide safe places for the people who live there. Um, New York City, I mean, it's also pretty low-lying and, you know, as we saw with Hurricane Sandy, it, it could definitely, it's going to have to do a lot of rebuilding and, and kind of strengthening their resilience and infrastructure to be able to continue, especially at the scale that it is right now. I mean, Los Angeles, I think because of the fires and then also just drought issues out West. Um, a lot of these, it's gonna become harder and harder to have um, sustainable water supplies to a lot of cities out West. So it's gonna, you know, it's all of us are touched. Um, some certainly will be more impacted sooner than others. And and yeah, it's, it's a, they're big questions, um, but they're ones we have to be, you know, wrestling with. So what advice would you give young students to What advice do I, would I give students? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say, I mean, some of the most inspiring 
activists, climate activists out there are young people, pre people like Greta Thunberg, but also there's tons in this country who, um, you know, like there's a really cool project called This Is Zero Hour that was started by high school students. There's the Sunrise Movement that was started by young people. Um, so there's, you know, all of these kids and young people are starting to really raise their voices and say, we deserve a healthy future. We deserve a livable planet. And we are calling on our uh, elected leaders and also our parents and our principals and the people who have power to actually protect us. And so I think that's a really, really powerful voice. Um, so certainly, you know, look up those organizations, um, look at, you know, get involved where you can. And then my, one of my mentors who um, really got me into activism, his name was Lenny Combe. And he, he basically, he, when he first started, he got involved in the, in the environmental movement because of the Arctic refuge, because he was a journalist who went up there to cover the refuge. And there was, it was just so egregious, the, the fossil fuel infrastructure, how it was impacting um, the native communities and their spirituality and their culture. And he said he couldn't, you know, as a journalist, you have to be kind of objective. And he was like, I can't be objective here anymore. Like this is too moving. So he became an activist. And during that fight, um, early days of the Arctic Refuge, we've been fighting to protect the Arctic Refuge for over 20 years now. Um, he asked one of the Gwich'in elders, they had just won a big battle. Um, I don't remember if it was the core battle or, or what it was, but he was asking them like, how did you do this? Like, what was the strategy? Um, how did you win? And the elder just kept replying, we showed up and we did it in a good way. And he would push back and be like, but what did you do? Like, what was the strategy? Like he wanted all the like chess plays, like what was the brilliant behind the scenes? Um, and the elders kept repeating, we showed up and we did it in a good way. And so I think there's so many ways to get involved in the climate, you know, in climate activism through sharing podcasts like this, through I'm getting involved in, in local groups through um, reading about it and educating yourself um, through getting involved in these in these kind of big you know youth movements like this is zero hour and sunrise movement but it's really it's just finding what calls to you you know like what it is like you know like for example if you love birding the Audubon Society has a lot of great climate stuff um, there's lots of local initiatives so it's just figuring out like where you feel passionate and where you feel like you have something to bring and then you just show up and you do it in a good way and you keep doing it over and over again. Um, so if you could recommend an organization that everybody should look into, what would it be? Yeah, I would say, let's go with this is zero hour. There's so many good ones, but this is zero hour or sunrise movement. They're both really amazing but and both youth led. Um, so I know you talked about this already a little bit, but who are your biggest influences for your like advocacy and like the way you uh, protest? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Lent and Easter because yesterday was Ash Wednesday, but I would say Jesus comes to mind, like someone who wasn't afraid to go up against the powers that be and try to protect vulnerable people and um you know really fight for what was right even though it ultimately cost him his life um so that is definitely a big inspiration to me um the Gwich'in um the community who's fighting the arctic 
National Wildlife Refuge, drilling in the refuge. Um, they just, you know, they, in this documentary that I produced, one of them said that we've been, we've been fighting terrorism for 300 years, you know, but because of colonialism and because of not just drilling in the refuge, their sacred land, but, you know, the way that indigenous people in this country have been treated for since, you know, since white people got here, essentially, and how they just keep finding some deep well of courage to, to, you know, to fight for their culture and their community and their spirituality. And, um, you know, I just can't imagine generations of my family and community being oppressed like that and still waking up and, um, and finding the courage to go up against oil companies and the US government, you know, some of the most powerful entities in the world. Um, but at one point, one of the Gwich'in that we interviewed was just like, we don't give up. And so I think that that just always, when I feel like giving up, I remember that a lot of people who have endured uh, far harder things than I have and or ever will have found courage to keep going and to make the world a better place. And that's, you know, that's what I hold on to. Oh, what would you list as your greatest achievement uh, as an activist artist? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of things I'm really proud of. Um, I really love some of the documentaries that I've been able to be a part of because I love storytelling. I think stories really do change the world. So most recently, I would say this film on the Arctic refuge that the Wilderness Society produced or produced with me and some other amazing folks um, called We Don't Give Up is something I, I felt incredibly honored and proud to be a part of. Um, I also, I just kind of on a practical level, the working on the Beyond Cold campaign, which is one of the most successful, it is the most successful climate campaign in the world, um, as far as just like retiring coal plants and getting fossil fuels offline, um, like actually reducing carbon emissions. Um, when we were able to retire the Asheville coal plant, it felt like a pretty big victory because we'd worked for years on it. And it was just very tangible, you know, it was like this coal plant and our community is gone now. <laughs> it is no longer emitting fossil fuels or poisoning, you know, communities in Appalachia. So that felt, felt really good. But yeah, and then I love the podcast. I love, um, I love, you know, talking to people about these things that inspire me and give me courage and learning from them. So No Place Like Home is definitely one of my favorite babies too. So in the beginning, when you were developing your career, how did you like broaden the type of work that you did? Yeah, I mean, I would say I, I would say I never really like chose to be an activist. It kind of chose me. So it wasn't like I had like a clear, like I'm gonna get my law degree and then go on and do this and this. Like it was more just kind of what unfolded in my life. And I do, I think it's great to have more like specific plans, but also I think life is such a crazy journey and experience. Sometimes it's nice just to see where it takes you. Um, but I would say one of the most impactful things early on for me is I did an internship at the Sierra Club, um, which is our nation's oldest and one of the largest environmental organizations. And I, 
I was working with um, faith communities on different environmental initiatives, but that really opened um, the doors for me in the environmental community. So I would say as students, if you're looking to get more, if you're looking for a career, anyone can be an environmental activist or a climate activist um, or just a good citizen, you know, like there's tons of ways to volunteer your time and to get involved. But if you're looking for a career in the climate movement or the environmental movement, um, doing internships or volunteer work with or local organizations or, or national organizations is a great way to do it. I'm, I'm sure that some of your teachers could help you with that or I'm happy to pass on some information. Um, and then the other thing too, I think is, is you have to follow your passion like a lot uh, we did a documentary at the at the Paris Climate Agreement, um, you know, way years ago. And one of the filmmakers there was like, I just don't know if I'm doing enough because he's in filmmaking, not in climate activism. And I was like, yeah, but you wouldn't be here creating this film if you haven't gone to film school. And if you hadn't followed your passion, you wouldn't have the tools that the climate movement so desperately needs to be able to tell great stories. So I think it almost any tool like if you want to be an engineer if you want to be a scientist if you want to be a filmmaker if you want to be a poet all of those things are things that are desperately needed in the fight to save our planet so um yes there are practical things you can do like doing internships and volunteer work but also like if you follow your passion and what you feel called to there's almost always a, or there is always a way that you can take that and give it um to good causes like like fighting climate change um, why and how do you think some people still ignore environmental issues today? Um, I mean, unfortunately, I think that, um, climate change has been very politicized. You know, it shouldn't be. Science shouldn't be a political thing, you know, and it wasn't always like, um, President, the first President Bush had a, you know, worked on climate change in his administration. I think even the Reagan administration had people working on climate. It wasn't always the super politicized issue. Unfortunately, I think as oil and coal and gas companies realized that it was going to be threatening their business model and their profits, they spent a lot of money, I mean, billions of dollars creating misinformation campaigns and um, getting, you know, kind of spokespeople to to share uh, misinformation about about climate change to confuse people and to create doubt so that we wouldn't make progress on this and so they can protect their profits. Um, and it was very effective. It, it, it worked very well. It's why a lot of people in this country still you know, don't believe in climate science. Mm -hmm. What do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. I mean, I think that I haven't thought a whole lot about it. Um, I mean, I hope that I was able to be a healer of sorts, you know, to like heal this this world and help bring healing to the people here. Um, all these big divisions we see in our society and also just, you know, really practically all the people who have experienced harm um, because of the way that we treat the earth and each other. Yeah, and I hope to like I, I I hope I'm able to tell some great stories that help inspire people to to get act involved and to do something. We were inspired by this. Thank you so much. That was the end of our interview. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Grateful to do it. Bye. Thanks.
Thanks for tuning into the Pensacola People's Podcast, produced by the 7th grade class at Creative Learning Academy in Pensacola, Florida. Make sure to check in next week for more podcasts.